Okay, well, I do have to confess that uh, normally what I do when I come and preach here is, uh, so we use the English Standard Version at Escalon, and, uh, and so what I'll do is I'll read the passage out of one of your pew Bibles, and then it usually is not that disruptive because all my slides have the ESV, and you can just follow along on the slides. But this morning, uh, Nate has put uh, the NIV, which is your normal translation, up on the, on the screen, and all I have is my ESV. So... I figure we can just muddle along together, is what we tend to be doing these days anyway, uh, with a slight discomfort uh, in that. So we're looking at Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to start in verse 26 and go through chapter 4, verse 7. Um, and so you can find that on the screen if you have your own Bible. Um, I'll give you a second to go ahead and open up to that. Again, it's Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26. And we're going to go all the way through uh, to chapter 4, verse 7. So hear the word of the Lord. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's holy word. Okay, well, G.K. Chesterton was a notable 19th century author and thinker, and many of you may have heard of him or even read his book. His most famous one is a book called Orthodoxy. Uh, But there's a story that's often told about him uh, where the New York Times apparently had approached him and asked him to put together uh, an essay uh, trying to describe what really is wrong with the world. Now, before I... uh, tell you what he, how he responded, I'd just like you to think for a minute, like, what is wrong with the world? We're in a time where it seems like there are many things wrong with the world, and, uh, and the things, and usually what happens in, in these kinds of times is all the things that we thought were wrong with the world before this happened uh, are, are, uh, are, were confirmed in what we believed beforehand, is what, what tends to happen. So if you're on the political right, What's wrong with the world is lack of personal morality, a refusal to accept personal responsibility, uh, combined with the brute reality that certain disparities in this life will always exist, and that's because cultures, uh, certain cultures are set up better uh, to live in the world as it really is. And that's, that's typically what somebody on the political right would say. Now, I'm not saying anything about the truthfulness of that understanding or not, Um, But if that's our response to the question, what is wrong with the world? 
we have to be honest with ourselves. Uh, that what we're really saying is, what's wrong with the world is that people don't think and act like me. <laughs> right? And if we're on the political left, what's wrong with the world is societal structures, implicit bias, oppression from the rich, the powerful, and the elites who are trying to maintain their power. And if we could just create an equitable society and a level playing field, even if that means revolution, we could finally have justice. And again, if that's what we think is wrong with the world, we have to admit, whether we're right or wrong, that what we're really saying is that what's wrong with the world is that people don't think and act like me. <laughs> so G.K. Chesterton, this is, what he, this is what he responds to the New York Times. He says this, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. See, I would imagine the Apostle Paul would be more inclined to agree with G.K. Chesterton. When we get to chapter 3 of Galatians, the Apostle Paul has laid out the gospel. He has explained uh, why his authority as an apostle is to be uh, listened to. And then he unpacks everything that God has done for us in Christ uh, to give us this free gospel where all we have to do is understand the truth and receive it by faith. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the benefits that we have. Those who have come to know the gospel, what, what are the benefits that we have? And we're going to look at this in three ways. First, we're going to look at the reality of our union with Christ. So here we are going to look at all the astounding benefits that we have as believers. And then we're going to look at point number two is the response to our union with Christ. So if we've come to be united with Christ by faith, how then does a true believer of Christ respond to that? And then finally, we're going to look at the role of the law in that response. So that's our three points. And we're going to just jump right into point number one. So in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is at pains to show the Galatians that they are in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so the promises that were given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, repeated in chapters 15 and 17, those promises are the Galatians' promises too. And they come to the Galatians in the exact same way they came to Abraham, by receiving them directly by faith. So we are no longer imprisoned by the law where we fear punishment and we fear missing out on the reward. Instead, we have this whole new relationship where we obey the law out of gratitude for love for God and actually the joy of obedience. Our entire relationship to God and his law has changed because, as Paul says in verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, some might push back on the Apostle Paul here for using the word sons. They might say, well, Paul, couldn't you have just said child? Um, aren't you being sexist and overly patriarchal by using the word sons? And actually, no. The fact that Paul uses the word sons here uh, helps communicate to us the intense beauty of what we have in Christ. Because in Paul's culture, it was only the son who could even receive the inheritance from his father. And so the fact that Paul here is telling everybody, no matter their race background, no matter their uh, class background, no matter their gender, Paul is telling every single person that you are all sons, which means you are all recipients of the inheritance of God. Everybody who comes to know God by faith is number one in God's family. He's saying everyone is in the most privileged position. We are all heirs according to promise. 
verse 29. That's why Paul says in verse 28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So he's not saying that earthly distinctions no longer exist. He's not saying whether those distinctions are right or wrong. He's just saying that they don't separate us from this status as firstborn sons in line to receive all of the inheritance of God. Your race, your economic status, the sex God assigned you at birth does not keep you from being a full heir of all of the promises of God. Notice Paul mentions three things there. He mentions race, he mentions economic status, and he mentions gender identity. Isn't it amazing that 2,000 years later, these distinctions are still ripping people apart and separating them? Our culture is obsessed with the advantages or the perceived advantages of these distinctions. Every headline we see is talking about race, economic status, and gender equality. And the truth is, As 2,000 years or more of history has proven to us, the world has no solution to these problems except power or violence even. But in Christ, we have this freedom to be who God made us. Whether that's rich or poor, man or woman, black and white, we can't feel superior to anyone else for what we are or what we have. It's all a gift. We can't be jealous of someone else for what they have because God is the one who sovereignly assigns us all of our distinctions in this life. Now, that doesn't mean we don't fight injustice or try to raise our own position or the positions of others in this life. Of course we do. But the very best way to fight injustice is to share the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is freedom from fear and envy and entitlement on one hand, but it's also freedom from pride and judgment and self-righteousness on the other because everyone in Christ is wearing the same jersey. We're all wearing the same uniform. Look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So baptism is being publicly identified as a child of God, as belonging to Christ. In baptism, we put on Christ. It's the sign and the seal that points to the faith that we have, that unites us to Christ and brings us into a relationship with Him, where we have all these wonderful benefits of of being His Son and inheriting everything that Christ has earned for us. And the closest thing we have to this kind of unity in our culture, I would say, is either a sporting event or military service. So think about it. Soldiers on a battlefield, a crowd in a football game. What do you see? You see men, you see women, you see rich, you see poor, you see black, you see white, all wearing the same jersey, all wearing the same uniform, all fighting for and rooting for the same outcome and rejoicing in the results together. It doesn't matter if you showed up at that game in a Mercedes or a Ford Festiva People are still standing in those stands, high-fiving each other, hugging each other, and jumping up and down. Honestly, that's, that's part of why sporting events are so beautiful. Because they have, this, they have this ability 
to come and like seize us out of our own world where we get kind of obsessed with ourselves and focus us all shoulder to shoulder on a greater cause. And our world is aching for this kind of unity on a national and a global scale. And only the message of salvation in Jesus Christ by faith alone can bring this peace. And so when we put on Christ, we publicly identify ourselves as belonging to him. We represent him to the watching world and it's joy, it's freedom, it's life, it's peace. We don't have to make excuses for ourselves anymore, our failures and our mistakes. We don't have to try to explain ourselves so we can fit in. We don't have to be obsessed with our own jealousies and, and, and our, our, our feelings of uh, frustration. We just relax, trust a good God who loves us and has promised us everything that belongs to his son. And we have eternity to look forward to, glory and joy and peace, right? Point number two. The response to our union with Christ. So before Paul says anything about the Galatians' response to grace, he first reframes what God has done for them, and then he adds this concept of adoption. So if you look down at verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, what happened was, Jesus came down and he was born of a woman. He's just like us. He's born under the law. So all of the law's demands, all the weight of the law, Jesus was born underneath that. But also, Jesus was born under all of the law's curses. But he fulfilled the law perfectly, which meant he shouldn't have to suffer its curses, but instead he also suffered all of the curses of the law, every single one of them, so that he could redeem us out of the law and its condemnation in order that he could make us sons of his father by adoption. So is an adopted son ever worthy of his new status and his family? No. All an adopted son does is receive this new status as a gift. And so what is the result of what God has done for us in Christ? Paul tells us in verse 6, and because you are sons, and not because of anything that you have done to earn it, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I submit to every single one of us this morning that this is the normal response of someone who has been converted to Christianity. Paul is reminding, in Paul's argument, the reason he even brings this up is because he's reminding them of this subjective experience that they had of recognizing everything that God has done for them and then experiencing God pour His Spirit into their hearts and they cry out, Abba, 
Father. And so when Paul uses, or the word that Paul uses here for crying, this is the same word that uh, the Bible uses to describe Jesus crying out on the cross. This is the same word that's used to describe a woman crying out in childbirth. This is the same word that's used to describe somebody who a demon is cast out of them and they cry out. When, when this word is used to describe prayer, it's talking about a loud and passionate prayer. It's a crying out where our heart is engaged. And then, and then we cry out, Abba, Father. Well, wh- why that? Well, because God, our relationship with God, we see it now. He is our loving Father. He knows me. I know Him. I desperately need Him. I I have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. I I can read His words and hear the God of the universe speaking to my soul. Those of us who grew up with a good dad, we know this experience of crying out to our Father. Why? Because we know, God, we know dad is there, <laughs> we know dad cares, and we know dad is coming. Right? He's there, he cares, he's coming. And, and this intimacy is what a believer now has with God. And so this, this crying out is, is, the, is the knee-jerk response of someone who is accepted all of the benefits of Christ by faith, or has been given all the benefits of Christ by faith. There's no way that someone can see all that God has done for them and not have their hearts flooded with affection for God. And so if you doubt, if there's anyone here who doubts that this is a normal experience for a Christian, please hear me out. So I know there's things that we all get excited about, There's things that every single one of us, we cry about, we worry about, we go to bed at night thinking about, and our thoughts about those things can make us scared or happy or hopeful or delighted. We we ache inside over them, or we get brokenhearted or depressed if they don't turn out how we want them to, or, or we get giddy and excited if they do. And so that is the way we respond to different circumstances or situations or benefits of this life. What about if we've been united to the God of the universe by His Son? And if we're His child and an heir of everything that's His, Wouldn't we expect at least a similar reaction in our heart to that as we have to the things in this world that we care about? So how is it possible that we could be more excited about anything this world has to offer than we are about what God has done for us in Christ? I mean, what God has given us in Christ is infinitely more wonderful Everlasting, permanent, good, special, amazing than anything this world has to offer. And so so to, to the degree to which we're more excited about things of this world and more moved by them 
than we are to the things of God is the degree to which we have to repent. And I don't want to stand here and act like I don't have to repent about this myself. When we read the glory of who God is and what he's done for us in his, in his word, when we sing it, and our cold, fleshly, sin-indwelt hearts think, yeah, that's pretty good. What's for dinner? That is a time to repent. Father, forgive me. Open my eyes to see all of what I have in Christ. Scripture describes our response to God's activity in our lives with words of deep feeling. There's fear. Isaiah 66, verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Psalm 130, verse 4, But with you there is forgiveness. Why? That you may be feared. Whoa! He forgives me so that I would fear him? This isn't talking about some intellectual fear, friends. This is, this is talking about the felt experience in our heart of trembling before God's word. There's hope. Psalm 146, verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Hebrews 6.19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So there's this picture here where Christ is in heaven behind the ultimate curtain. And there's this connecting line between him and us here in this fallen sinful world and all of its struggles and pains, all of its sin. And what we experience is this hope, this this sure hope, then when we shuffle off this mortal coil, we we will go to where he is and be with him for eternity. If this isn't talking about a felt experience in the heart, then then these words, I I think, are, are, are meaningless. There's desire. Oh, no, first, there's hatred. <laughs> the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. So we know evil, we're aware of what it is, and we hate it. That means we don't excuse it, we don't laugh at it, or with it, or watch it on TV. Even if we're drawn to it because of the indwelling sin in our heart, we still hate it. There's desire. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you, your name, your name, and your remembrance. So when I think of your name and I remember who you are, You are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There's delight. In the the way of your testimonies, I delight 
as much as in all riches. I mean, I could go on and on and on and show verses about sorrow and mourning and brokenheartedness over our sinfulness, not because of what it cost us, because we'd see of what it cost our precious Lord, who was innocent and perfect. I mean, I could show, I could show you verses about gratitude and love and mercy and zeal for God and the things of God. It is utterly indisputable that being adopted as sons of God and being given all the benefits of union in Christ will produce affection in the hearts of believers. Because when God sends His Spirit into our hearts, we cry out, Abba, Father, because you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, I am bold to assert that there never was any considerable change wrought in the mind or conversation of any person by anything of a religious nature that ever he read, heard, or saw that had not his affections moved. Let me translate that. Nobody ever read something, heard something, saw something of a religious, spiritual nature and were changed in the way they thought about it and didn't have their affections moved. Now, it is possible, like an adopted child, right? When, when an adopted child is first brought into the family, that child does not understand its new relationship with his heavenly father, or with his father. That child does not understand how to behave in this family yet. So he doesn't have the right attitude towards God. He doesn't have the right behavior, right? But, but that's, that's a child. It's someone who's immature in the faith. So the younger we are in the faith, the more likely we are to take it for granted. But if our heart is not eventually moved by what God has done for us, if we, if we don't eventually have this, this um, born-again experience where we see God in His glory and His goodness and His wonder and His beauty, and his value, I mean, this is, the, this is the story of, in Matthew 13, of the kingdom, right? The guy who went and found the treasure and went and sold everything that he had to buy that field. So if our heart isn't eventually moved by what God has done for us, then we have to ask ourselves, well, what am I moved by? What am I excited by? And then we have to ask ourselves, well, I wonder if that is really my Lord and Savior. Point number three, the role of the law in that response. So the law, the law is actually what gets us to a place where we can truly say that what is wrong with the world is me. So now we're going back to our opening illustration. Remember, G.K. Chesterton said, what is wrong with the world is me. I am, right? So the, the person who sees that what's wrong with the, the world is them is the person who has looked into the law of God and saw that the reason this world struggles, the primary reason this world is in pain and hurting is me. Me. Not them. Me. Can you imagine if our world could see this? Can you imagine if the politicians on the right and the left could see this? We could see it's me. 
Now, I'm not saying that they don't still have to have real-world solutions to world-world problems. I'm just saying that if, if our heart disposition could be that what's most wrong with this world is me, and that, and that I've been rescued from me by the grace of God, right? God's law is what shows us that it is my sinfulness, my rebellion against God, my natural bent to hate God and others that is destroying this world. And it's only when we really see that through the law showing us our sin and God's salvation that the reality of our union with Christ will amaze us. And then when God's grace, when it comes to us, it becomes this transformational reality in our hearts. The law is a gift. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so what Paul's doing here is he's comparing the Jewish experience of being under the law as that of being a child under a household manager uh, that's being basically raised by his wealthy father. What that household manager does is the household manager uh, teaches the son the standard that they have to meet, right? They, They teach them what it looks like to live as a member of that family. And, in some cases, uh, they decided whether or not the child was worthy to receive that reward once the time came. And so in the hands of the devil, right, this, this law as a household manager is a terrible thing. Because it's this massive weight where we think, oh no, there's no way I can meet that demand. It's so crushing. And, and, we, and we're lost in this whirlwind of fear despair, because we can never meet that, and so that means we'll never get the reward. Or, in the hands of the devil, it becomes this terrible thing where we think like, yep, I did it. I am the one who obeys the law perfectly. All those other people need to be like me, right? So it's, it's either pride or despair in the hands of the devil. But in the hands of God, It helps us see who we truly are and brings us to Christ. Where we are opened, our eyes are opened to see that everything that we long for is ours by faith in him. So we have to experience ourselves being held captive by the law's demands. We have to see that we have no right to the inheritance because of our own personal sinfulness And when we see that, when we see God's holiness and complete perfection next to our utter sinfulness, and then we see that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law's demands perfectly, suffering its curses totally in our place so that he could purchase us and make us his own, make us adopted children of his Father. I mean, this, this is, this is, this is life. I wonder, though, if what we tend to do with the law of God is we agree with the Apostle Paul that it's impossible to keep it, and so we know that we can't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or our neighbor as ourselves. and then we think, well, I, I know I believe in Jesus, and he died for my sins, and he kept the law in my place, and I'm never going to be able to meet the law's demands anyway, so I'll just muddle along here, doing the best I can. And the truth is, if that's our perspective, generally speaking, I doubt that we really are amazed by all that God has done for us. So what ends up happening is we let the fact that it's impossible to keep God's law become an excuse, I think, for not even trying. 
for the record, I say this because this is in my heart. I don't say this as a weight or condemnation for any of you. I'm saying this because as I look at my own soul, this is what I do. This is what I even teach my children to do. Like, I, I've thought to myself, my son's eight years old, and I thought, he, he doesn't really get that he's required to obey God's law perfectly. He didn't get that. All he knows is like, well, I think I'm doing good enough, and Jesus forgives all my sins, so, Dad, can I watch a show, <laughs> right? And again, there's a certain developmental trajectory that, that we're all patient with. But I think we build this into ourselves and our children because we're so focused on making sure that they are saved that we never let them experience the fear that they might not be. This is important. I think, we need, I think people need to experience the fear that we might not be saved. But it's such a yucky feeling, we want to kind of save people from that feeling. Right? And so we say, no, 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 Jesus loves you. Do you, you believe the right thing? You're good. You're, you're good. And we want to save ourselves from the yucky feeling. But fear is not actually a bad thing, right? So if you're standing on the edge of a cliff, and it starts to crumble underneath you, and you feel fear, huh, that is a really good thing. Because if you don't feel fear, you're going to be like, what's this? Oh, look at it. It's crumbling underneath me. Oh, no, I'm dying, right? So fear is this wonderful thing that leads us to, to safety. So I don't know what's in your heart this morning or where you are, but, but if you find yourself mostly unmoved by all that God has done for you in Christ, and the fact that, that you, simply by faith, are an heir to the promises that God gave Abraham, because he adopted you as his son through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, of suffering and death on a cross, not to mention a life of perfect holiness, and rising from the dead. Let's not forget that. If those realities don't move us in our hearts to tremble at his word, to cry out, Abba, Father, in in dependence and adoration and praise, then I wonder if it could be because we have not let the law sit on us long enough. We have not sat under it and felt its weight and its demands and really understood that God has never lowered his standard of holiness for his people. Never. Even his redeemed people. So when we see that what is wrong with the world is me, and that God has made a way for even me to be his child, then we are moved in our hearts and willing to pour out our lives in grateful obedience and praise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are inclined away from the horror of our own sinfulness. We, our hearts are naturally self-justifying. And so we're so grateful for your law because it shows us the reality of our situation apart from Christ. But it also shows us the reward that is offered to us. And the only way we can be saved and receive that reward is by being united to Christ by faith. And when we are united to him by faith, we become your child by adoption. 
We are ushered into a dynamic relationship with you where you are not just the God who is holy and far away, but you are our Abba who is near. What a gift. We praise you and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.